Welcome to the Political Trenches, Local Government at Work. Municipal governments are local elected authorities. They include cities, towns, villages, and municipal districts. In the Political Trenches, Local Government at Work, we dive into the top issues facing local governments across Canada. My name is Christopher Brown, host of the Cross Border Interviews with Chris Brown, and I am joined by my co-host, Ian McCormick, president of Strategic Steps Incorporated. Today, we bring you the letter F, which stands for Fire Services. Later on in the episode, we'll be speaking with the City of Chestermere and Growing Up Fire podcast host, Fire Chief, Jamie Coots. We will also be talking about a judge in Ontario calling for the removal of the mayor of Elliott Lake due to a conflict of interest complaint lodged against him, how a town in Ontario has been self-described as soon to be the most indebted town in Ontario, and how municipalities are dealing with unpaid taxes. Happy New Year, Ian. How are you? Yeah, it's great to see you again, Chris. Hope you had a good uh, a good break. And uh, it's great to be back at this. You know, I was thinking it's hard to believe we're at uh, F already. I, I haven't counted the letters, but that seems like quite a long way through the alphabet. It certainly is. And we have lots to discuss today. So I'm looking forward to discussing some of these great topics that we have. And to start off, I want to start in Elliott Lake, Ontario. According to a CBC report, an Ontario court has ruled the recently re-elected mayor of Elliott Lake should be removed from office. This decision comes three years after a conflict of interest complaint against Chris Petrie, the mayor, were referred to the court by the integrity commissioner of the small town in northern Ontario. According to the article, it is alleged that between 2017 and 19, Patry tried to convince fellow city councillors to build a planned recreation complex on a site near to a store he owns in a commercial plaza. Ian, how important is conflict of interest training in local governments? That's an interesting place to start, actually, Chris. Uh, conflict of interest training, regardless of profession, I think is really important. And most of the time, the conflict of interest, and it is the case in here too, apparently, deals with money. So people talk about conflict of interest as it's this broad scope and, and swath that works through life of, of various types and sorts. But ultimately, it comes down typically to do I benefit from this decision that I'm going to be making as a member of an elected body? Or potentially, do, do I, is there a negative effect, which rarely happens, but sometimes that can be a conflict of interest as well. And in this case, of course, you made a reference to it too, that this was associated with a private business interest that the, the mayor had held. The judge, as you noted, uh, had removed the mayor from office, and I believe the municipality is kind of trying to figure out quite what to do because there has been an election that has occurred. This is the interesting quirk to this one. The, alleged, the allegations uh, happened in uh, late in the last decade, 2016, 2019, I can't remember exactly when. And since that point, of course, Ontario went through their general election last year. He put his name forward with these allegations on the table. The people of Elliott Lake subsequently re-elected him to office, gave him a brand new mandate. And of course, that is part of the argument that the mayor has been making too. So you made a reference to conflict of interest training. It's very important. But I mean, the, the, the baseline to this is that there is conflict of interest legislation that must be followed. And that's what would contravene. Whether there's training or not is secondary. So did you follow the law? Did you not follow the law? And the integrity commissioner, the judge, have said 
that as we've all heard, ignorance of the law is no excuse. So in this case, yes, training is really important at the beginning of the term, probably throughout the term as well, as well as just plain following the law. In Alberta, the, we, we talk about money when it comes to conflict of interest a lot, but there are other also things that you have to follow as an elected official, especially councillor. Um, when I was up in a small town in northern Alberta, one of the councillors found out that her husband couldn't do work for the municipality because she was a counselor at the time. So conflict of interest may not also may not always be about financial, but there are other aspects that you have to look into as well. And that's why that training, like you said, is so important, even once during the middle of your term, right? Yeah, that's true. Now, in that case, I, I don't know specifics of what you're talking about, but it is fairly common. And usually this legislation, and sometimes it's called pecuniary interest, which just means conflict of interest that deals with money. So pecuniary interest, conflict of interest, as far as I'm concerned, municipally, they're very similar. But in the case that you're making a reference to, and it happens from time to time, particularly in small towns where one partner may be on council as well as opening as owning the local restaurant, the other partner may work for the municipality. There's no inherent conflict in that until the decisions have to get made. And one of the reasons that this can create a problem differently from province to province or territory to territory is because typically conflict of interest applies to me as an elected official, to my family, and to my employer. So if any of those benefit from a decision that I make as an elected official, for better or for worse, then that's when the problem starts to occur. Now, family is can change as well. Some places have said, you know, family is is yourself, your spouse, your kids. Some have included parents, some included siblings. Some, One of them, in fact, I don't know if it's still the case, but used to be anybody who lived in the same house as you included family too. So the definitions change across the country, uh, family. So knowledge of that is really important too. And there's no reason a counselor can't have a spouse who works for the municipality, but it may mean that the counselor can't participate in some of, some of the decisions which I guess uh, removes a little bit of their effectiveness too. Uh, so there are all kinds of uh, procedures, not around this, but in order to deal with it. And the elected officials need to know what those rules are and follow them. A municipality in Ontario commissioned a report that calls itself one of the most indebted municipalities in Ontario. Earlier this month, the town of Bracebridge, Ontario, says the town will face significant debt in the next few years, they specifically mentioned the construction of the Muskoka Lumber Community Center as a reason why. Ian, do municipalities need to start looking at scaling back infrastructure projects like Bracebridge to accommodate the rising inflation crisis? No, I don't think they do, actually. Uh, they need to be more prudent, potentially. Uh, but and they may, may need to make some longer term decisions. But I I think everything that a municipality does is in response to a, a real or a perceived need. So in this case, uh, there was the recreation center. It was a recreation cultural center library kind of facility. And they needed to, obviously needed to borrow money for capital because municipalities have very limited sources of revenue. Right? They They can't put out bonds or anything like that. So they are reliant on things like tax, property taxes, um, any other fees and charges that they happen to reply. They get transfers from other orders of government uh, grants. 
And then they use debt as a tool. Now, debt isn't really revenue so much as it is a liability, but it, what it does, it's using future money to pay for current things, thinking that those people who are actually using this community center are the ones who are actually paying for it because you're paying back the debt through, as you go through there. Now, when it comes to scale of debt, um, there is a, there, there's a formula typically which talks about how much capital debt or long-term debt a municipality could take on without overburdening itself. So, or getting itself into trouble. And those are, that's regular, that number is regulated by the provincial or territorial governments. And it's usually X numbers of years of operating expenditures, your typical budget expenses. Very similar to the way a household would work too. The problem, not, well, I suppose there are other problems with debt, but one of the problems with debt is perception. And that is that uh, if you got, if you got a populist or somebody perhaps on the, the far, the further on the right of the spectrum who doesn't think that debt is a, uh, an appropriate tool, they will rail against this and they will begin to say, like you have just said too, this becomes uh, un unassume. This debt is uh, like unrepayable uh, over the life of the of the of the uh, whatever the asset happens to be. In this case, it's going to be long term because presumably the center that you referenced is going to be there for us for some decades for the people of Bracebridge, for the others as well. And it's providing a service that people re require. And because of things like asset management, I mentioned there's a library going in here or an arena that's going in here. The old library or the old arena has a natural lifespan. So at some point, those were going to have to be replaced or they would just go away and that asset would not be there anymore. And then that has a negative impact on Bracebridge and probably the region as a whole. So Debt is a tool like any other. If it's managed responsibly and appropriately, it's it's a tool that municipal government can use. Part of it's philosophical, of course. One of the weird things I found about this story, and just this is my last question on the topic, sure. is it's self-describing itself as the most indebted town of uh, Ontario, which you never see a town openly admit. Like they commissioned this report, the report came back and it says you are the you will be the most significant debt over the next few years, and call itself the most indebted municipality in Ontario. That's unusual, isn't it, for a municipality to release a report like this, but not yeah. even commission a report like this? It is. I, I thought the exact same thing you did. And then the little perverse back of my mind said, you know what, are they going to put this on the sign outside town? Welcome to Bracebridge, the most embedded, embedded town in Ontario. They're not. They're not. <laughs> it, but it's still better than the best place to live, work and play, which shows up right across the country as well and doesn't mean a whole lot. Debt is, as I mentioned, debt, debt can be good, debt can be bad. It, a lot of it's based on, on your perception as the elected official. You as the councillor have to make the decision, do we take on the debt or do we not? And then you have to answer for it. Now, they've just come out of an election last year, so they've got three, over three years to get to that point, by which time maybe the center is open and people are beginning to say, hey, you know what, that's actually pretty good. Earlier this month, Red Deer County Council voted unanimously to write off just under $2.3 million in unpaid oil and gas taxes. The move allows the municipality to recoup $435,000 in education taxes levied on the oil and gas properties that the county had to collect on behalf of the province, but did not actually receive from the companies. Another $8,600 in industrial taxes can also be recouped. Ian, how do municipalities like Red Deer County plan for a tough economic year when you have to write off previous year's unpaid taxes? 
Yeah. So that shows up as a liability on the uh, balance sheet, of course. So it doesn't enter the revenue and expenses for the current year, but it certainly does have an impact on the county's ability to be sustainable in the long run. This is an interesting one, too, because it's not only the municipality that has an impact, but some of these taxes are going unpaid to the landowners as well. If I have a, an abandoned well on my property, say, and nobody's paying me the rent, the lease on that, too. So the while we hear from the municipalities, it is also impacting individuals, uh, individual landowners too. And it's, you mentioned rural municipalities. By and large, that's the bulk of them, just because that's where the, the these facilities are. But there are some urban municipalities, particularly those with larger undeveloped land bases, which have some of these in them too. So it is an impact for sure on rurals. It's an impact a little bit on urbans, and it's an impact on individuals as well. When we were just talking about the last point about indebtedness, we talked a little bit about the limited uh, revenue streams that are available to municipalities. And you brought up the point that municipalities have to balance their budgets as well. So first of all, this revenue that comes in from royalties or leases or any of those sorts of things is revenue that doesn't have to come in from property taxes, whether that's, um, whether that's uh, residential or farmland or industrial or any of those, well, not industrial, or any of those things. So there then is a gap in the in the municipal budget, sorry, in the municipal statement at the end of the year. If I budgeted to bring in a million dollars in this particular category, but I only get 800,000, well, obviously my budget is not gonna be balanced at the end of the year. So it does have a significant impact. The rural municipalities of Alberta, RMA, has made a point of it as well. You made a reference to Red Deer County. Others have said something very similar too. So these predictive shortfalls are gonna have an impact ultimately on the people who live there, on the programs and the services and the amenities and the facilities that they all want, that they have chosen to live in this case in Red Deer County for. So they had chosen, that you made a reference that I think the county was owed about $88 million at the end of 2022. So they wrote off a chunk of that. And as such, a bunch of it was money that they had paid to the province already in anticipation of receiving money from the company then, or the um, uh, education property tax, for example. So they get some of that money back, but it's it's dimes on the dollar. So if they expect a large chunk back in order to get a small chunk, then that certainly handcuffs their ability in current year and in future years as well. They have said that the municipality can put a lien on these properties, which only comes into effect really when the property is sold. So we you end up carrying uh, additional debt. Essentially, you're you're carrying these companies based on what they owe throughout the lifespan of whatever this facility happens to be. And then you can claim it once it's, once it's sold, as long as it's sold. You know, if, it, if, the play, if the company goes bankrupt and there are no assets to be uh, divested, then the municipality is not going to get it anyway. And even if it does, they're not at the top of the list of creditors um, on, the, on the lien anyway. So it, it has a long-term impact. And that's, I think, why RMA and probably rural municipalities elsewhere have been making a lot of noise about this. So uh, late in November of 2022, Ian and I sat down with the then mayors of Turner Valley and Black Diamond uh, during their amalgamation election. But now in 2023, after that election, the new town of Diamond Valley is officially up and running. It's incorporated. Ian, what's your thoughts on this new town? This has been fascinating to watch. I've been working with both of those uh, former municipalities now for a few years in a variety of different ways. 
last year I had, and during our A is for amalgamation, we talked to, as you've mentioned, both of the former mayors and we talked about, I'd been there a few years ago, do uh, last year, two years ago, I guess now doing their uh, council orientations and they, they, they did, did them together. Now I was there a month ago, maybe, and I did an orientation for the newly elected council. As of January 1st, that those previous municipalities don't exist anymore and the town of Diamond Valley does. They've got a new website. Interestingly, their website is diamondvalley.town. And I wasn't even, I didn't even know that the .town extension existed, but there we go. So they have gradually got, a, they've gradually begun the work of working together. Officially, they are one now, but uh, there were some little things that came up too when we were talking to the mayors and they were saying some of the unintended effects were things like uh, driver's licenses. Well, now the town that's on my driver's license doesn't exist anymore. And uh, mail mailboxes as well. And I saw a note from the province not that long ago that essentially said, you know what, leave it the way it is. And when it comes time to renew your driver's license, just renew it as Diamond Valley. And so those kind of things have happened. The former mayor of Turner Valley is now the mayor of uh, Diamond Valley, uh, Barry Crane, who we've talked to. The former mayor of Black Diamond is on council. Uh, in Diamond Valley. So there's a lot of knowledge that's there. The entire council is uh, comprised of people who were elected to one or the other of the town councils, and it's a pretty good balance. So they're off on a good good uh, step. They've got a lot of things to work through, bylaws, policies, culture, uh, they're really important, but congratulations to them. They have really been a model for what's happened. I made a suggestion to somebody there recently, they should publish a book about this, because I think there's a lot of good that could come out of it for other places in the province. And when we talked to the two mayors, they said, you know, this is one of those circumstances where it's a it's a combination of two equals where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's really pretty fantastic to see. So nobody was being forced into this. They chose their own self-determination. So congratulations to the town of Diamond Valley. And it's still early days for them. And like you said, they have a lot under their belt that they have to get to. So we wish them the best of luck moving into 2023 and their first year as the incorporated town of Turner, sorry, Diamond Valley. <laughs> I, I will <laughs> I will get to it one day. So with that, we will be right back with the city of Chestermere and the host of Growing Up Fire podcast, Fire Chief Jamie Coots. We'll be right back. Our guest today is the City of Chestermere's Fire Chief and host of the Growing Up Fire podcast, which is currently in its third season, Chief Jamie Coots. Chief Coots was the Fire Chief of the Lesser Slave Regional Fire Service during the May 2010 Slave Lake wildfires and now is the City of Chestermere's Fire Chief. Along with that, he is also uh, working with municipalities from across Canada on issues related to the fire department. Chief Coots, welcome to the Political Trenches. Hey, thanks. This is great. I'm excited to be here. So I want to start my first question off, uh, uh, sort of a open-ended question. We are now in 2023, Chief Coots. What is the biggest issue you believe is facing fire departments across Canada today? Uh, there's a few things, but I would say the biggest one is funding, right? Uh, and, and that kind of branches out into so many different things, uh, staffing, apparatus, trying to keep up with equipment, 
um, you know, all, all of the things that are moving on with the economy, right? So um, how do we keep up when the economy is, everything's so much more expensive, right? Um, so I, I would say that, but the number one thing is money. How are, if I, I throw a supplementary in this, how do you, how are, how's the city or other municipalities as you're working with them managing to keep up with that? You made a comment around apparatus and bunker gear and other stuff. Imagine even things like insurance are having a significant impact on the life of fire departments as well. For, for sure. And I, and I think that, you know, it's no different for every piece of the governance, right? In municipal government, provincial government, federal government, everything costs more. And so uh, when it costs more, we got two choices. We can raise taxes and get some more. We can cut costs and, and uh, you know, stick with what we got. But I don't know how much longer. I feel like we've been doing more with less um, for so long. I don't even remember kind of when it started and I don't know how much longer it can go on. I think it's impossible for us to just keep up with this pace. How important is it for a fire chief like yourself or other fire chiefs across Canada to have a good working relationship with councils and local governments and the administration within a city hall? Well, I mean, having a good uh, relationship is without good governance, right? Without uh, having people telling you what you're supposed to do, uh, you know, it's impossible to just get through this and figure it out. And so you be able to communicate. And, and so communicate, communication is getting so difficult. Um, you know, no one really wants to have the difficult discussions anymore. Everyone wants to have these short, sweet, um, tell me what I want to hear, get a yes or no and move on. The problem is, is when things start to get tight and we're trying to do more with less and more with less is we get to that point where we're going to have cutting services. And, and when we alter a level of service, service um, the government, the council or the mayor or, uh, you know, whoever we're working with, a Reeve, um, they're the ones that get to decide. And so we have to have these difficult discussions about we can't keep doing more with less. So how are we going to do less with less? Nobody wants that. Everyone wants to hold their levels of service but apply less money, less people, less apparatus, less buildings to it. Uh, it's a, a, impossible, right? And so if we don't keep having these difficult discussions, uh, we're not going to get through this, right? It's just everyone's going to be mad. Everyone's going to be blaming everybody. Uh, and at the end of the day, you, you have to have difficult discussions. Are you seeing um, more regionalization of fire service provision as a way towards economies of scale and things like that? You know, I'm found saying a lot lately, uh, ego, turf, time, and money, right? And so those four things are, are the big evils out there. And it doesn't matter if it's my job, your job, uh, you know, we're talking about family or, or home or, or your job, whatever, you got to figure out what you're up against, right? And so uh, there's all kinds of egos out there. I got mine, you got yours, that's how it is. Um, we have to sort through that and then the turf wars. And so I would say that in the fire service, regionalization is really tough because we've spent the last hundred years having turf wars about who's going to do this and who's going to do that. And, you know, who does the medical calls and who does the car accidents and whose fire is that? And so turf wars become this big thing that's super entrenched and it's got decades of power behind it. Even though the people move away, sadly, the problem persists, right? And so again, we go back to that. If you could figure out one, you know, is it ego, turf, time, or money? Then you can have a difficult discussion to help figure out how we get over, right? Is it one person's ego? Is it 20 people's ego? Is it a agency ego? Um, and then turf, time, money, you, you get the idea. 
Do you find culture comes into it as well? I mean, is it different in Chestermere, say, than it was in Slay Lake? And would it be different everywhere else around the province too? You know, there's 440 fire departments, give or take a few in the province of Alberta, and we probably run them 600 different ways, right? Like some of them will run different right inside of our own building, four shifts, like almost like having four fire departments. And, and so, yeah, the, the culture is a big thing, right? Um, you know, we talk about it all the time. Two things firefighters hate, change, and the way it is now. And so, you know, we, we have to change, we got to move forward, we got to do things, but we, we hate to have that change. And so you're trying to battle these two things that don't really make any sense, right? We don't love it how it is, so we're going to change it, but we don't really love to change. And so how do we get through that? Um, and in the fire service, all while you're dealing with some pretty big personalities. One of the big things that I, I, I'm hearing from councillors and mayors when I'm talking to them across Canada is recruitment. Recruitment, recruitment, recruitment. They're having an issue right now recruiting fire departments to keep them up to, to, to uh, industry standard. How should municipalities be addressing this issue in 2023? Yeah, so there's a couple of problems there right so there's recruitment there's also retention so how do we get new ones how do we keep the ones we got um and, and then we have the whole idea in 2023 that um so much has changed right and I, I hate to even say the word covid but it is what it is that that give us another thing to look at right um while a lot of the masses were working from home and and working by themselves you know we continued on the way we were and so our crews worked together and had to work tighter and had to be more isolated as a group and so um but you know when we let's just kind of break it down so recruitment a uh, lot of houses two people work now right um and everything costs more so those people have to work a lot and at good jobs that require a lot of their effort um you know in the old days i can you know when i started 30 some years ago somebody would be starting on the fire department was at the bottom of their job the start of their career right they're a 20 year old they start uh, they're a 30 year old they have a family now right they got a spouse they got a family so that change they're a 35 year old they've moved up to a management or supervisor position and their life got busy now in the houses we're seeing both people that same thing's happening to them so you know they're getting married they're having kids their job is both of them are getting good jobs and so now you have like whose job is more important than the other job and uh the answer is neither it's both important to each one of them and, and to move forward right and so um 30 years ago we would get a firefighter and as his job got more involved and his family got more involved and our asks of them got more involved they moved up as a lieutenant or captain um, it was really, they were leaving it to their spouse to, to suck up the extra and do more and take the kids more and be a bigger part of their kids. Um, now that's not available. That's not something that can happen. And so as they both move through their careers, um, you know, something's got to give. And lots of times it's the fire department. So they can't even start or they don't stay. And, and then we've got this whole problem with, uh, not problem, but I mean, occupational health and safety, right? So we have all these rules that we didn't used to have. They're good because they keep us safe and they keep our firefighters going, but they're bad because we now have to ask for so much time, so many hundreds and hundreds of hours every year that people just don't have that time to give us. Hmm. I do have a question actually, as you turn around, we talked a little bit about what happened in the past. We talked a little bit about now, what do you see on the horizon kind of for changes or not changes uh, in emergency services, integration, um, fire service specifically in Alberta, maybe Western Canada and beyond too, how are these things going to be changed in the way they're delivered? 
I think there's just so many things where we have to work together, right? And so we're going to have to get over all of these ego and turf problems and just get cracking because there's not enough time and there's not enough money and um, we're just going to have to do better, right? You see fire departments working with the ambulance to help sort out some of the patient care issues. You know, what's going to happen in hospitals? When I was a kid and you went to the hospital, there'd be four or five volunteers working there every single day and they'd be helping out, move some patients around. You, you never see... You hardly ever see a volunteer there now, right? And if you do, it's one and it actually not because they're volunteering their time. And so no matter what industry, no matter what job, um, we all have to look at how we're going to do all of this. And so technology is great. Here we are, you know, sharing our time, um, but technology also pushes us. We need more. We need it faster. We got to have it. And, and so, you know, we have social media pushing us. Every time we look around, there's some kind of media pushing us to do it better, faster, harder, whatever, and get the job done. And so, um, you know, for me, the changes are going to be in how do we work together and get this done? And how do we understand everyone's perspective, right? So I, I get to work with, in the last couple of years, I've probably worked with 30 different councils, 30 different administrations. Right? And every, they're all different. And so how do you invest all of that time? You have the same job, right? Uh, Chris, same thing. We're, we're all trying to learn how to work with all of these different uh, personalities. And uh, it, it all just takes so much of your time. You, so part of this to me anyway, is what we've been talking about is after the fire has started or after the motor vehicle collision has occurred, what do you do in terms of prevention to try and reduce the workload maybe? Yeah, so, I mean, we talk about that all the time, right? We have 24 full-time staff here, and that's all there is, um, six at a time. They still get holidays. They still get bank time. They still are sick. Their family gets sick. And so, you know, how do we reduce the workload? The problem is not so much the emergency calls for us, right? Uh, in the fire service, the emergency calls, we drop everything and everybody goes. We come back, we clean it up, so we're ready for the next one. The problem and the time consumption becomes in the, the training, the preparation, the inspections, the investigations, um, you know, all the things that pop up that we're not expecting day after day, week after week, month after month. So, um, I think those are the real things that, that eat up the time and, and take away from the the actual ability to go out there and help the public, right? Are councils coming around to the idea that the fire department needs to be sort of the integral part of protective services in Canada today? Because we always think of RCMP, we think of ambulance, but fire department usually is the one that is always forgotten. How should municipalities be looking at their fire departments today? I talk about this so much. I'm so pumped that you asked me that question, right? And so I call it above the line, below the line, and I can shoot that off to you guys in an email. You can put it up as well. But it, it's simply about figuring out the lanes and how we operate and communicate um, those lanes, right? And so for me, uh, you know, council are the we elected to make decisions. So the levels of service, that's theirs to decide. Sure, it's a discussion, but they decide. You know, the budgets, they decide. We have to have a discussion, but they, they pick. Um, you know, policies, that, that's all council, right? All the policy development. And so the line is recruitment and retention. If they do a good job, we'll be able to recruit key firefighters. Below the line, that's the fire department. And if we do a good job, we'll be able to recruit key firefighters. So we have things like the standard operating guidelines, the training, the maintenance, the cancer reduction program, the mental health strategy, all of those things are below the line. 
And so the problem is we're not creating a separation, we're creating a link, right? If we all do a good job, we can recruit firefighters, we can keep firefighters. And then we have to work off on the side all the time on staffing, right? Budgets, capital budgets, uh, operating budgets, and, and all of these other pieces. And so, you know, there's all of these discussions that have to happen, but every council is so busy right? We can't get you in here and we can't make that decision today. And can we put it off for another month? And, you know, there's only 12 months a year to push it off. And all of a sudden we're in another whole year and we've lost all of that um, time that we could use to build something. Chief Coots, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us today. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. We go back to our stays in Slave Lake. So thank you so much for sitting down in the political trenches and talking about the fire services and how it relates to local government. Anytime. Love to do this. Love to have a chance to talk about the fire service anytime. And with that, I want to remind everyone, uh, Chief Coots's uh, podcast, Growing Up Fire, is also in its third season and is out now. Check it out on all the streaming platforms. Thanks so much, Chief Coots. Another great episode under our belt, Ian, but there are some important dates and upcoming events regarding local government in Canada. Ian, Strategic Steps is hosting an event later this year. Tell us about it. Yeah, thanks. One of the uh, one of our company's values is wisdom. It talks a little bit. We use that to talk about things that we have learned. And over the years, one of the things we've becoming seen more and more prominent or prevalent is abuse of officials. And we've talked about that from time to time here. And it can be abuse from the public to elected officials. It can be abuse from one to another on councils. It could also be abuse of members of administration as well. And we wanted to figure out if we could do something about that. So we've decided to uh, plan a symposium to, to explore the topic. We're calling it Bucking the Trend. And it's addressing the, uh, addressing abuse in the, in the political realm. And so uh, buckingthetrend.ca is our is the website for that. It's a one, one and a half day symposium held uh, in the Edmonton area, and it will be on April 27th and 28th. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to put a link to that in the show notes here. And maybe we'll spend a little bit of time talking about it uh, more significantly later. So uh, April 27, 28, buckingthetrend.ca. Thanks, Chris. So uh, with that, we also have some upcoming by-elections across Canada because we're always on the lookout for what councillors are resigning, which councillors are leaving, and by-elections that are coming up. And there is a substantial amount of by-elections in the near future. In the town of Amherst, Nova Scotia, a by-election is being called for February 11th to replace an outgoing councillor. The town of Athabasca, Alberta, on February 13th, will be going to the polls. The village of Delia, which I know Ian will correct me here, Alberta, will be going to the by-election on February 14th. The town of Wembley, Alberta, on February 28th, will be heading to the polls. And on March 4th, the town of Devon, Alberta, and the district of Ivermere, BC, will also be going to the polls to elect a new councillor. So Ian, F is for fire service. We've had a great conversation. It's always a pleasure to sit down with you and talk about local government. Isn't that fun? Yeah. And uh, Jamie Coots is always a fun guy to talk to as well. You've known him for a while. I've known him for a little while as well. And uh, fire folk are just a unique breed. It was a lot of fun. So with that, this has been the Political Trenches Local Government at Work. Have yourself an excellent day. And remember, everyone, go follow us on social media. Hit the subscribe button and send us a message or two if you want us to talk about an issue that's important to your community. Talk to you later. Thanks, everybody.
The Political Trenches is brought to you in partnership with Strategic Steps Incorporated and the cross-border interviews with Chris Brown. Music by Peter Gagliardi. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Political Trenches. Be sure to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platforms. This has been The Political Trenches, local government at work.